Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. I hope you are well. I hope your New Year is treating you right. I hope those New Year's resolutions haven't already gone up in flames. If so, I'll just be happy anyway. Okay, uh, we are in 1 Nephi chapter 6 through 10. And how we've been looking at uh, First Nephi so far in our last episode is we're, we're reading the text and looking for just extra commentary, what it, what it says, what it means, um, what we can see. We're paying particular instance, uh, particular, sorry, attention instance. We're just paying particular attention to Nephi as a narrator and what we see, what does he include, how, why is he doing the things he's doing, and what does that mean for real life for us right now? So, uh, if that works for you, fantastic. If you're like, Nate, you need to do something different, feel free to let me know, because like you know, this is the Garage Band of Come Follow Me podcast, and feel free to give your feedback. And on that note, let's jump ahead and check it out. So, chapter six. So, remember, they just got the plates. Uh, His dad's been studying them a little bit. And Nephi says, I don't give the genealogy of my fathers as part of this record. He's like, basically, trust me, we're descendants of Joseph. Now, this is important genealogically, but also it is going to be another characterization for Nephi. He's going to paint himself as Joseph, the one brother who has dreams about his brothers needing his leadership. See, Nephi's already had that. The brother whose brother, um, the the one whose brothers betray him and sell him into Egypt. He and that brother that ultimately offers salvation to their descendants. Nephi is going to see him not only as a new Moses, but as a a new Joseph. And so that's part of the the picture he's painting as part of the, the story that should come to mind almost automatically here. And so he's like, I'm not going to bother on these plates making a whole account of what my father wrote. I'm just going to write here on these plates, the things of God. And then again, his thesis in verse four, for the fullness of mine intent is that I may persuade men to come unto the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and be saved. That's what he's all about. That's what we're all about. Trust in that there is a divine power wanting to save you. And he says, whoever writes on these plates afterwards, I'm giving you a commandment as my descendants and children, which have carried a lot of weight in this strong patriarchal order, that they shall occupy these plates with things that are, uh, that they shall not occupy these plates with things that are not of worth unto the children of men. So very clear mission. This is not a genealogical record. This is not a historical record. He has other plates for that. We lost them. This record is an invitation to come to Jesus and receive salvation, to know that you are saved through him already. So then we get over to chapter seven, right? Lehi makes an end of speaking to his children, but then the Lord speaks to him again and says, Lehi, it's not good that you just go into the wilderness alone. You got all these boys, they need wives so that they can have families. And so uh, they, they must have known this family already. That's my assumption. Uh, maybe they're getting a command to go talk to some strangers. But the command is that Nephi and the brothers should go to the land of Jerusalem and go get Ishmael and his family because it matches up. Now, this is another month-long minimum journey back. Um, but it came to pass that Nephi did again with my brothers go forth to the wilderness and go up to Jerusalem. Now, the absence speaks volumes here. Ain't nobody complaining about going to get girls, all right? 
So they go up to the house of Ishmael. And this is a cool line. They gain favor in the sight of Ishmael. They speak to him the words of the Lord. And the Lord softens Ishmael's heart. And so the whole family takes their journey with us down to the wilderness to the tent of my father. Bro, hire these boys for door-to-door sales. They just convinced a whole family of girls to abandon their home and march into the wilderness. Seriously, hire Nephi, Sam, Laman, and Lemuel, and you will get paid. Door-to-door solar, pest control, I don't care, whatever. They just persuaded families to abandon their homes and go to the wilderness. They're good. And so as they journeyed in the wilderness, remember, this is going to take weeks to get back there, especially you got like new travelers, not the, the hardened ones of Laman, Lemuel, Sam, and Nephi that have been doing this for months now. Uh, remember, like, a, um, like two, three weeks out, then back again, then back to the tents, now back out. Like these guys are, are really good at this, right? And so it's probably going a little slow. But as they get out there a little bit, Laman, Lemuel, and two of the daughters of Ishmael and two of the sons of Ishmael and their families rebel against us. Yea, against me, Nephi, and Sam, and their father, Ishmael, and his wife, and their three other daughters. And they came to pass that in the witch rebellion, they were desirous to return to the land of Jerusalem. Now, it's kind of interesting to me that Nephi couches this move as a rebellion against him. I don't really know that it has anything to do with him. They want to go back. Maybe it's a rebellion against God, but he, Nephi's clearly drawing in lines of us versus them that he's going to keep going with here throughout the story. And Nephi, uh, and now I, Nephi, being grieved with the hardens of their hearts. Now, again, in the Bible, when they're using phrases, it's pointing to stories. There's echoes within echoes, and Nephi's doing the same thing here. I'm trying to get you to see with Moses and Joseph. This phrase, hardened their hearts, is not used a ton in the Bible. But know who it's used for over and over? Pharaoh. Moses verse Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 8 verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. In fact, this idea of Pharaoh having a hard heart is used 19 times in association with his opposition to Moses. What Nephi is doing couldn't be more clear. I'm the new Moses. Laman and Lemuel are resistant. They're in opposition. Children of Israel, Pharaoh, whatever. He's painting this story over and over. Therefore, I spake unto them, saying, Yea, even unto Laman and Lemuel, Behold, ye are mine elder brethren, How is it that you are so hard in your hearts, blind in your minds, that you have need that I, your younger brother, should speak unto you and set an example for you? Now, time out real quick. How well received do you think this, hey, why are you so hard of heart, blind of minds, and that I have to be a good example for you? In any family situation ever, with the younger brother saying he's got to be a good example for you, is that ever going to be well received? How is it that you have not hearkened unto the word of the Lord? How is it you've forgotten that you've seen an angel of the Lord? You've forgotten the great things the Lord has done for us, delivering us out of the hands of Laban. How is it that you've forgotten that the Lord is able to do all things? You've forgotten that he's promised us a land of promise and that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. You've forgotten that the Jerusalem has rejected all the prophets. They cast Jeremiah in prison. If you return to Jerusalem, you will perish with them. And came to pass that I, when I, Nephi, had spoken these words unto them, my brethren, they were angry with me. Shocking. 
honestly, I'm shocked that they were upset at this methodology of communication. <laughs> Since Nephi had obviously approached the topic with so much love and diplomacy. I don't know, man. Can you be right and wrong at the same time? Consider this with your interaction with your, your friends, your children, your siblings right there. And it came to pass that they did lay their hands upon me. For behold, they were exceedingly wroth, and they did bind me with cords, and they sought to take away my life, that they might leave me in the wilderness to be devoured by wild beasts. Now, alarm bells should be screaming in your mind. Nephi is Joseph of Egypt. Joseph, Joseph, Joseph right here. Genesis thirty-seven, thirty-three. And Jacob recognized the clothing. He said, it is my son's tunic. Wild beasts have devoured him. Without a doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. They're leaving Nephi to be torn to wild pieces, Joseph, brother, and betraying him. It is honestly, the echoes are so clear. This is such a biblical way of telling a story. Um, But I prayed unto the Lord, Nephi says, Lord, according to my faith, which is in thee, wilt thou deliver me from the hands of my brethren? Give me strength that I may burst these bands which I am bound. When I'd said these words, behold, the bands were loosed. Now, I think it's an interesting contrast right here. He praised like a muscle man being large in stature to just snap these suckers. Instead, they're loosed. I don't know like what to make of that, but it's interesting. But he's loosed, and I stood before my brethren, and I spake to them again. Now, like I really submit to you that it's not because of Nephi's perfection that he is granted grace, but it's in spite of his imperfection. Real people really trying to follow God, and everybody botching it in their own special sort of way. But he's desirous to do good and God works with him. The same thing goes for you. We're going to do things imperfectly and clumsily, but God's going to work with us. Now, when he starts yelling at his brothers again, guess how they react? Yeah, shocking. They were angry with me again and sought to lay hands on me again. Again, nothing shocking about this. But one of the daughters of Ishmael, guess which one hooked up with Nevi, and her mother and one of the sons of Ishmael did plead with my brethren And that did soften their hearts, that they did cease striving to take away my life. I think it's intriguing that it's not Nephi's persuasive righteousness that wins them over, but the intercession of their mother and sister and Ishmael's daughter. I think there's something to be explored there on how to build a Christian community. How do we really follow Jesus? What, what's more valuable? What's more helpful in the situation? Nephi's righteous railing or their mother's gentle in- intervention? What really softens hearts and changes lives? Think about this in the context of your own communication. And it came to pass that Laman and Lemuel were sorrowful because of their wickedness. And that's Nephi's insertion here, their wickedness. Insomuch that they did bow down before me. Joseph, 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 right? Genesis 37, 5 and 6. And Joseph dreamed a dream and he told his brethren and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood around about and made obeisance into my sheaf. Like they bow down before me, right? And Laman and Lemuel did plead with me, Nephi, that I would forgive them of the things they had done against me. Genesis 42, 6. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he, uh, it was he that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. 
skip a couple chapters, go over to Genesis 50, 16. So Joseph's brothers approached Joseph saying, Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and they and the wrong they did harming you. You see it? See the echoes Nephi's painting here? And it came to pass that I did frankly forgive them all that they had done, and I did exhort them that they would pray unto the Lord God for forgiveness. Genesis 50. Joseph wept when they spoke unto him and said, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good. This is so much how the Bible is written. You'll, you'll find pieces, echoes of stories over and over, and Nephi's carry on, on this tradition in a masterful way. So Nephi, um, the Laman and Lemuel repents, and everybody lives happily ever after and travels down to the tent of our father. Notice that echoed um, theme of sacrifice, right? Where without our stuff, tent of our father. We did come down to the tent of my father with my brethren, the house of Ishmael, and they did offer sacrifice and burnt offerings, plural, to God. How rich are these people? They burn in all sorts of animals all over the place. No wonder they're about to go hungry. But it shows like how deeply grateful they are that they, they are united, this multi-family endeavor now. Now, it's time to pack up. We gathered seeds of all manner, grains of every kind, seeds of every kind. And I, I'm just curious, where do they gather all these seeds? Was this part of the mission when they go back to Jerusalem to get more seeds? Do they gather it from the surrounding area? Um, by the Red Sea, maybe there's some stuff, but this seems more agriculturally driven. So it's weird to me that they're gathering them at this moment. I don't know if he's intersecting um, this right now or, or what the plan is. While we tarried in the wilderness, God spoke unto us saying, oh, excuse me, Lehi spoke unto us saying, behold, I have dreamed a dream or in other words, I've seen a vision. And interesting that Lehi's main form of revelation comes in the form of dreams. And I have reason to rejoice because of Nephi and also of Sam. And I have reason to suppose that they and also many of their seed will be saved. Again, if we're paying attention to the narrator, notice the transition right now. Between verses 2 and 3, he transitions in chapter 8 from being a summary voice and narrator voice to speaking in the first person. And whenever a narrator is speaking in the first person, you can see like what they're trying to emphasize, what they think is invaluable, important information enough to record by hand so carefully here. Behold, Laman and Lemuel, I fear exceedingly because of you. Dun, dun, dun. For behold, methought I saw in my dream a dark and dreary wilderness. You can hear Laman and Lemuel be like, isn't that where we're at already? And I saw a man, and he was dressed in a white robe, and he came and stood before me and bade that he follow me. Very, again, classic uh, apocalyptic scene here. Uh, an angel, uh, a guide, if you will, helping you to, to follow and, and to, um, to see clearly what's going on. And I followed this messenger through this dark and dreary waste for the space of many hours. And I began to be scared and prayed to God have mercy on me. And then we came to a large and spacious field and I beheld a tree whose fruit was desirable to make one happy. Now this is definitely Garden of Eden, Tree of Life imagery here. It's also reinterpreted in the, um, through the lens of Proverbs, which sees this tree as a source of healing. So you get these layers from Genesis and Proverbs shining through now in Lehi's text. And I went to the tree 
and I ate it, and it was most sweet above all that I had ever tasted. And it's white to exceed all whiteness that I'd ever seen. This is very similar to the vibe that John the Revelator is going to have of heaven. And that's going to come about 700 years later of how he describes the celestial realm. And as I ate the fruit, it filled my soul with exceedingly great joy. And I wanted my family to eat it. So I looked around that I could see if I could see my family. And I beheld a river of water and ran along near the tree, uh, which I was partaking the fruit. And I looked to see if I could see the source. And after the source, I saw Sariah, Sam, and Nephi. Sam listed first, even though he doesn't get much credit here. And they stood afar off like they didn't know where they should go. And I beckoned to them with a loud voice that they should come unto me and partake of the fruit, which was desirable above all of their fruit. And they did come and partake of the fruit also. I love this great approach. Invite others boldly to do good things, to feel good things. And I was desirous that Laman and Lemuel should come and partake of the fruit also. So I cast my eyes towards the head of the river that I might see them. And it came to pass that I saw them, but they would not come unto me and partake of the fruit. Now time out real quick. We may, we may come back to this later, but so often we tie up our happiness on whether or not those of our families are following what we want them to follow. Lehi is going to give you a masterful example right here. Offer what is good to you, what is rich to you, then leave it. I'm telling you right now, your happiness is not conditioned on their actions. You don't see Lehi walking up there and dragging his sons to the tree. You don't see him endlessly nagging them or guilt tripping them. I know what you're good for you. You're going to eat this cake and like it. It doesn't operate that way. God doesn't operate that way. And warning to you, anytime you place your happiness in the control of somebody else, that's a risky endeavor. We can love, we can invite, we can uh, put an example, but we cannot force and we should not try. Lehi says, and I beheld a rod of iron. Um, pretty much the most solid thing in his time period, right? And this rod of iron extended along the bank of the river and led to the tree. And I saw a straight and narrow path. Notice the spelling on this, S-T-R-A-I-T. This is not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. It's not a straight line, but it's a narrow, narrow path. He's just reiterating twice, and this is a, a verbal tool, a poetic tool used throughout the Bible, where you use the same sort of thing, but you repeat it. So it means narrow, narrow path. It means it can wind, right? It's the same ideas expressed in Taoism. The Lord is not found in extremes, but he's found in this narrow place of balance and harmony. That's what Lehi is expressing. It's not in the extremes here. It's right in the centerpiece, in the flow point, right? And this, um, this path went or walked beside the rod of iron and led to the tree by which I stood. And there was also a large and spacious field as if it had been the world. And I saw now 
numberless concourses of people. Many were pressing forward that they might obtain the path which led to the tree. For real, this is always the goal for everybody on earth. Lehi describes this as making him feel better than he has ever felt before. That's what we all want. Happiness, harmony, peace, joy. That's everybody's goal. Everybody is seeking this. But as they seek, as they come forth, there arose a mist of darkness, an exceedingly great mist of darkness. And those who commenced seeking for happiness, joy, and peace did lose their way and wandered off and were lost. Oh, I love this characterization from the Book of Mormon from Nephi and Lehi. He's not saying that they wandered off and that they're evil just lost we all want to feel good we're all looking for a way forward and sometimes we just get lost that's beautiful and i saw others pressing forward catching on catching hold to the end of the rod of iron and they did press forward through the mist of darkness clinging to the rod of iron until they came forth and partake of the fruit of the tree. And after they had partaken of the fruit of the tree, they did cast our eyes about as if they were ashamed. I don't know. We can probably interpret this in several ways. It is a dream after all, a vision after all, a poetic after all. And these usually do lend themselves to multiple meanings. But we have a problem with shame and scrupulosity in the church. If you don't know the word scrupulosity, it it comes from being pathologically obsessed with being moral, with being pure, and it results in almost constant guilt. It comes from being scrupulous or obsessed with every detail of doing what's right. And you see this sort of extremism in the way they cling to the rod. This sort of extremism is damning, meaning it stops your progression. It has a short shelf life. You will burn out clinging and being extreme. You'll end up feeling resentment, shame about everything in life. And it's, here's the thing, it's not balanced. It's not part of that straight and narrow path. It's not part of harmony there. Extremism does not help you to feel the joy that you want to feel. Notice that they get to the point where they commune with God and they still feel shame. It's because they're clinging to it. They're feeling like they are the source, not the tree is the source. Okay, there's a different way to go about it. And I cast my eyes round about to the other side of the river of water and there was a great and spacious building and it stood as if it were in, in the air high above the earth and it was filled with people both old and young, male and female. And their manner of dress was exceedingly fine and they were in the attitude of mocking and pointing their fingers towards those who had come to partake of the fruit. And after they had tasted the fruit, they were ashamed because of those that were scoffing at them and fell away to forbidden paths and were lost. There's that other way, right? Is that, that we just listen to people's mockery. We are social creatures. We are, we are built to be parts of tribes and groups. Um, one of the strongest things we can do is to build Zion and build, create connections with meaningful people who are seeking the same things we are. And if we don't create those, those close connections, we're going to look for those connections in other places. And we're going to be ashamed at how we're trying to seek happiness 
and we're going to get lost. And again, the language is lost, not evil here. And I, Nephi, do not speak all the words of my father, but to be short in writing. So this is an interesting transition between his first person retelling and now narrator summarizing. I wonder why, like, what is he pointing at? What is he emphasizing? Look at that, right? And Lehi saw other multitudes pressing forward and they came and they caught hold of the end of the rod of the iron and they did press forward continually holding fast to the rod of iron until they came forth and fell down and partook of the fruit. Is there a difference between clinging and holding? I think so. Clinging versus holding fast. Shame versus fulfillment. See if you can sort out in your own soul what, what that difference would feel like for you. And my dad also saw other multitudes feeling their way towards the great and spacious building. Feeling their way. Interesting language chosen for this translation. Not reasoning their way or rationalizing their way. Feeling their way. Both an emotion and kind of a touch sensation. We're kind of all blindly grappling grasping towards this happiness and notice that that's what people are doing here and it came to pass that as they feel their way towards the great and spacious building many were drowned in the waters many were lost wandering in strange roads many did enter that strange building and they started to mock us but we heeded them not what are you giving attention to what are you not giving attention to and these are the words of my father, for as many as heeded them had fallen away. Laman and Lemuel partook not of the fruit, said my father. And after my father had spoken the words of his vision, dream or vision, which were many, he said to us, Behold, because of these things which he saw in a vision, he exceedingly feared for Laman and Lemuel. Yea, he feared lest they should be cast off from the presence of the Lord. He did exhort them with all the feelings of a tender parent, that they would hearken unto his words, that perhaps the Lord would be merciful to them and not cast them off. Yea, my father did preach unto them. And after he had preached unto them, also prophesied unto them many things, he bade them to keep the commandments of the Lord and did cease speaking unto them. I think this is a great model to deal with your family. Those who are uh, maybe doing the things you want them to do and, and those who you fear for, especially those who you fear for. Teach clearly. Teach vividly. Be clear. Share your love of the things you love and why you love them. Leave no question. Share your love for them. Then lay off and trust. God is able to do his own work. You are not in charge of saving anybody else besides yourself. It is not your job to save anybody, including your kids. God knows how to do his work. Years ago, I coached six-year-old wrestling. I had a wise mentor. My mentor said, listen, wrestling is hard. Your boy is going to lose and he is going to cry. This is not a reflection of you as a father. Oh, such good advice. He lost. He cried. Everybody does. It's hard. But far too often, fathers take it personally, like their son crying or losing reflects on them. They try not to be. They're, they're good fathers, but you feel it a little bit. It feels personal. The same thing happens with your, your kids going down paths you don't agree with. You feel responsible. You feel like it reflects you. 
Far too often we take our children's decisions personal. We feel like their life is a judgment of our value. I felt as a mother. Or more real, we're just afraid. We're afraid for them and we're afraid for what's going to happen to them in this life and the next and we act out of fear. But it's not about you and it's not about fear and it's not your fault. And even if it is your fault, Jesus is able to do his own work. So love them, invite them, and then chill out. That's faith in Jesus Christ, Lehi says. And all these things, Nephi says in chapter 9, verse 1, did my father see and hear and speak as he dwelt in a tent in the the valley of Lemuel and also a great many more things. I want to know those other things. But they can't be written on these plates. There's not enough room. And now as I said concerning these plates, behold, they are not plates upon which I make a full account of the history of my people. Um, I have received a commandment of the Lord that I should make these plates unto a special purpose. Wherefore, I, the Lord had commanded me to make these plates for a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. Oh my goodness, this is so important. We always are asking why. We all want to know the future. We want to know how it's going to turn out. But God is completely disinterested in telling us why. He's completely disinterested in telling us the whole future. And and I love this. Basically, this, this chapter says, I'm making these plates. I don't know why. We know why. We know that they are made to replace the plates lost by Martin Harris. And they're so very important. And Nephi would have loved to know the story of his, his plates rescuing us in the future. It would have been so motivating, so helpful and useful to him, but God doesn't tell him. And he's not going to tell you either. You'll have no idea the, the butterfly effect you're having of, in your life. But you can rest assured, as Paul says, that all things work together for the good of those that love God. Just know that God has a wise purpose. Know that he has prepared a way. Go out and do good and don't worry about it. None your business, okay? All right, let's go back to chapter 10. So he says, in these plates, I'm going to give a record of my reign and my ministry. Interesting that he's already calling it his reign, um, even though he's not reigning over anybody right now. And he says, After my father made an end of speaking about this dream and exhorting them to diligence, then he spoke about the Jews. He spoke about how they'd be destroyed, that Jerusalem would be destroyed, and they'd be carried away captive to Babylon. Babylon's honestly the only candidate for this right now. And then after they should return and possess again the, the land of their inheritance. This so follows about the prophetic pattern we see in the Bible. It is, how, it is how prophets preach. They warn about sin. They invite repentance. They show the consequences, specifically in destruction. They offer hope in a time of restoration. Lehi is so Old Testament, you don't even know it. Yea, even 600 years from that time my father left Jerusalem, a prophet of the Lord would raise up among the Jews, even a Messiah, or in other words, a savior of the world. But this is where we start to branch from the Old Testament. This exactness of prophecy, you don't see this as clearly laid out in the Old Testament. Connecting the terms prophet, Messiah, Savior, 
These are really clear connections that aren't happening as clearly in other parts of the Old Testament. This is why the Book of Mormon is so powerful. This has something to offer the rest of Christianity. The fact that Jesus will be a prophet or an interpreter of God's will, that he'll be the Messiah or the anointed one, the true king priest to rule this world, and the savior not just of the Jews and their political nation, but the savior of the whole world. Right there in one phrase, it has some radical theology getting thrown down here in the Book of Mormon. And Lehi spake concerning the prophets, how great a number had testified of these things concerning the Messiah, of whom he had spoken, or the Redeemer of the world. There's another term. So we got prophet, Messiah, Savior, and now Redeemer. It's a term used a lot in the Old Testament, referring to God redeeming Israel out of slavery, buying them back. Wherefore, all mankind was in a lost and fallen state. Lost, connect that back to the wandering in the previous dream. We're all trying to be happy. We're trying. We just get lost. And it knocks us down. And they would be forever. Regardless of what you do, how much you, you cling to the rod, how scrupulous you are, it doesn't matter until you rely on this Redeemer. This book is a witness of Jesus Christ. It is saying that the way out is reliance on Him. This is good doctrine. It is clear doctrine. And Lehi spake also concerning a prophet that should come before the Messiah to prepare the way of the Lord. This is a pretty classic Elijah prophecy. Malachi is going to use this sort of idea to close the Old Testament later on. Obvious reference to John. And he should go forth and cry into the wilderness, prepare the ways of the Lord, make his path straight. For there standeth one among you uh, whom ye know not. That's an interesting clue about Jesus. This is so much good stuff. See, the Old Testament gives you this vibe that Jesus is coming down from heaven. And Lehi is already teaching that Jesus is going to come and he's going to be among you and you're not going to really recognize him for the Messiah. It's crazy. And he is mightier than I, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to unloose. And much spake my father concerning this. I don't know any other Old Testament prophecy making such clear claims about John the Baptist. It's really pretty cool. My father said he should baptize in Bethabara beyond Jordan and said that he should baptize with water and he will baptize the Messiah. So clear, so clear, so clear. And after he had baptized the Messiah with water, he should behold and bear record that he had baptized the Lamb of God and take away his sins. Again, new title here. So many titles, so rich in content, so rich in doctrine. Break this down. Lamb of God, right? Um, And what that means to them in their context. Go through there, dig deep. And remember that the, the, he's going to baptize the Lamb of God who takes away from the sins of the world. And remember, sin in Hebrew just simply means to miss the mark. Or in the context of Lehi's earlier vision, it means to wander off, to get lost. Jesus takes away our lostness and he restores us. And it came to pass that after my father had spoken these words, he spake unto my brethren concerning the gospel which should be preached among the Jews and also concerning the dwindling of the Jews in unbelief after they had slain the Messiah. What? What? Uh, Who else in the Old Testament is saying that the Messiah, the anointed true king is going to be slain? Nobody says this, okay? This is is revolutionary in the context. You You just got done with the Old Testament and New Testament. You know this. The Messiah should be slain. Bam! Who should come and after he had been slain, be raised from the dead and should make himself manifest by the Holy Ghost and the Gentiles. 
Holy crap! This could not be more clear in the Old Testament era text about the mission of the Messiah. Others in the Old Testament allude to it. Lehi just comes right out and says it. And it really sets the tone for the rest of this book, the directness of this book. Lehi is saying that the Messiah is not going to come as a political redeemer, but that he is going to come as a life redeemer. And how he does this is through surrender, death, and resurrection. That is the central theme already played out. It lays down the central theme for Book of Mormon theology, Book of Mormon atonement theory. All of that should center on this idea right here that the Messiah comes, dies, and resurrects huge, huge, huge. Yea, even my father said, spake much concerning the Gentiles, also concerning the house of Israel, that they should be compared like unto an olive tree whose branches should be broken off and should be scattered upon the face of the earth. This theme of scattering and gathering is also going to saturate the book of Mormon right here. Nephi's going to obsess about it. His younger brother Jacob's going to use it extensively in his allegory in Jacob 5. It's going to be huge. And this idea that our mission as those who have found Jesus Christ, who have eaten the fruit, is to go out and invite others. That is it. You want to make it simple? You partake of the goodness of Jesus, then offer the goodness of Jesus to others. Um, And wherefore he said, it must needs be that we should be led of one with one accord into the land of promise unto the fulfilling of the word of the Lord, that we should be scattered upon the face of the earth. Now, I, I don't know exactly where he's getting this idea of scattering, maybe in a variety of places. One candidate is from Genesis 49, where Jacob prophesies about Joseph as a fruitful bough, uh, its branches running over a wall, scattering branches. That may be part of what he's seeing uh, right here and what uh, Jacob is going to elaborate on later. And after the house of Israel should be scattered... They should be gathered together again, or in fine, after the Gentiles had received a fullness of the gospel. This is crazy talk in an Old Testament context. Crazy talk that the Gentiles, somebody who is not considered house of Abraham, house of Israel, should be the ones with the fullness of the gospel contributing to the gathering. This is an absolutely bananas prophecy. Uh, though God had given Israel the commission to bless the whole earth in the Old Testament, they'd never done anything with this commission. They're insular to the extreme. And the idea that an ethnic Jew would say that uh, the Gentiles would be the caretakers of the, the gospel is just crazy. This is a striking prophecy. This is a powerful prophecy. The natural branches of the olive tree or the remnants of the house of Israel should be grafted in or come to a knowledge of the true Messiah, the Lord, the Redeemer. Again, that the Gentiles would be the messengers of the true anointed high priest, King of Israel. There's nothing like this in the Old Testament. It's revolutionary. And after this manner of language, did my father prophesy unto my brethren and also many more things. Man, if what he's saying is already this revolutionary, I want to know more what he says. Um, and I do not write them in this book for I have written as many of them as are expedient me in my other book, which we lost. And all these things of which I have spoken were done as my father dwelt in a tent, repeated phrase, pay attention to it as he dwelt in the Valley of Lemuel. And it came to pass after I, Nephi had heard the words of my father 
concerning the things which he saw in a vision, and also the things that he spake by the power of the Holy Ghost, which power he received by faith in the Son of God. Um, and again, there, there's another title, Son of God, that's only vaguely alluded to in the Old Testament and made more concrete in the New Testament. And the Son of God was the Messiah who should come. Mind-blowing stuff. There is new Old Testament doctrine all over the place here. Just pay attention to these titles. Son of God, Lamb of God, Redeemer, Savior, Prophet, Messiah. Oh my goodness, so many, so much stuff here. I, Nephi, was desirous that I might see and hear and know these things. I know that God's the same yesterday, today, forever. I know that those who diligently seek find and that the mysteries of God can be unfolded to them by the power of the Holy Ghost. So, um, I want to ask God, and we're going to see that next time. It's powerful. It's good. Though, of course, of the Lord is one eternal round. You can know it too. Okay, so... What's your takeaway here? I think there's several candidates. One is the mission of Jesus Christ as taught by Lehi. Oh my goodness, it is good. The Book of Mormon is such a rich witness directly of the Son of God, automatically of the Son of God. It's so powerful in saying you personally, individually can come to Jesus despite your imperfections if you're just willing to come. That's the qualification. Find that harmony. Find that balance between extremes and walk that path of life. And feel Jesus' redeeming love. It is, he's like, it'll feel better than anything you've ever felt to be free from who you are. To, to stop trying to save yourself and to let him save you. You're not going to be groping, clinging, seeking out external validation. You're just going to feel good. And then you can... Go, go out there and offer good to other people. Man, that, that mission might be something powerful you contemplate. Perhaps also contemplate, maybe it's personal to you, how to approach children and friends who aren't living like we want. Perhaps particularly those who aren't in the gospel anymore, who we wouldn't consider faithful or, or practicing anymore. How does Lehi approach his children like that? What can we learn from that example? How do we approach others? And, and also combine with that, um, just how, how Nephi was saved, not by his righteous railing, but by gentle intercession. Um, the, and how we're feeling our way back. It's not going to be so much us arguing our way back, but feeling our way back. There, there's a lot of good things there. A third thing you might consider is just most of the time you're not going to see the full outcome of your good works. So stop worrying about it and just get out there and do something good today. Got it? Here's the thing. The message of the Book of Mormon couldn't be more clear. Jesus is alive. And you will live this life and die. But thanks to Jesus, you will live again. And Jesus has the capacity to take away from you where you got off track. Because we're all off track. We all are. I don't care how righteous you think you are. We're all screwed up in our own little way. 
we're all lost. We're all a little egotistical. We're all a little selfish. But Jesus can, can take care of that. He can get you back to the tree of life. He can get you back living and just living life. And I love that it's the tree of life, not the tree of, I don't know, obedience or something like that. He can get you back to the tree of life, living more sweet and pleasant than you can ever dream. Here's the secret. Rely on the true king, the real high priest, the prophet, savior, redeemer, living son of God, the lamb of God. Know that he has got you, that it is already all right. Trust that with your whole heart. Let go of any guilt, shame, scrupulosity, fear. Let go of it all. Trust that he's got it. And with that freedom, just go out there and lift. Go out there and build. Try again today. Today's a new day. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.